Bienvenidos and welcome to La Raza Chronicles, Crónicas de la Raza, produced by Nina Serrano, Vanessa Bohm, Julieta Kuznir, and Vilma V. In tonight's program, we speak with Danalis Padilla, professor of Latin American history at Dartmouth College, about the missing 43 students of Ayotzinapa. Nina Serrano also interviews Lucha Corpi, the first Chicana detective story writer and noted poet about her new memoir. We also feature music by Mexican singer-songwriter Edna Vasquez and La Raza Chronicles' favorite Son Jarocho band, Los Cojolites. Make sure to stay tuned till the very end to hear our weekly calendar of upcoming events. All this and more, but first, we begin with Noticias Sin Fronteras, News Without Borders, with Vilma V. This is Vilma V with Noticias Sin Fronteras, news headlines without borders from America Latina for the week ending November 30th. Haiti. Last Friday, in response to months of anti-government protest throughout Haiti, Haitian President Michel Martelet has announced the establishment of an 11-member presidential commission to deal with the nation's worsening political and electoral crisis. His brief announcement came after another day-long anti-government protest in the Haitian capital of Port-au-Prince. The president stated, quote, The country is divided. The problems are many. The problems are complicated. Elections have not been held in Haiti since 2011. The proposed date for elections this year, October 26, came and went without any voting taking place. The Haitian government was unable to secure support from the opposition to pass the necessary electoral legislation. Colombia The Colombian general whose capture earlier this month by FARC rebels caused a suspension of the Colombian peace talks in Havana was finally released last Sunday by the FARC rebel group. General Ruben Dario Alzate was kidnapped on November 16th while traveling in civilian clothes with only a corporal and a lawyer accompanying him in a jungle area of Choco province known to be controlled by the left-wing group. On Twitter, Colombian President Juan Manuel Santos demanded to know why the general, quote, broke all security protocols and was dressed in civilian clothes in a red zone. A Colombian government delegation will travel to Cuba to speak with FARC negotiators about the resumption of the peace talks sometime this week. Brazil. According to a study published by the Brazilian Forum on Public Safety, Brazilian federal and state police have killed, on average, six people a day in the past five years. The report which was released earlier this November, states that 11,000 people were killed by Brazilian police between 2009 and 2013. The report states, quote, The empirical evidence shows that Brazilian police make abusive use of lethal force to respond to crime and violence. The study also looked at Brazil's homicide rate, finding that over 50,000 people were killed last year, or about one person every 10 minutes. The majority of the homicide victims were black, and more than half were between the ages of 15 and 29. Mexico. Last Thursday, Mexican President Enrique Peña Nieto announced a sweeping overhaul of the nation's 1,800 local police departments by proposing to place them under the direct control of the 32 state governments. 
According to the president, the states of Guerrero, Tamalipas, Michoacán, and Jalisco would be among the first states required to bring their municipal police forces under state control. The president's initiative is widely seen as a response to the crisis in Ayotzinapa, where 43 students are believed to have been massacred after local police turned them over to the drug gang Guerreros Unidos in late September. On the same day that the Mexican president made his announcement, another 11 decapitated bodies were found dumped in Cocula, Guerrero. This is in addition to a number of mass graves which have been discovered during the search for the missing students. Many activists and others are critical of the president's proposed reforms. Jose Miguel Vivanco of Human Rights Watch stated, quote, It's hard to take Peña's announcement on human rights seriously, given that it's largely about commitments and plans that were supposedly already ongoing. Demonstrations in support of the missing students were held yesterday, December 1st, while still others are planned for this December 5th and 6th. Protesters are calling for the Mexican president's resignation, among other demands. Uruguay. President José Mujica's hand-picked successor, Tabaré Vázquez, has won the presidential runoff in Uruguay, easily defeating conservative challenger Luis Lacalle Pau over the weekend. Mr. Vasquez is a doctor who previously served as the country's president from 2005 to 2010. In the capital of Montevideo, thousands of cheering supporters took to the streets to celebrate the victory. Vasquez said, quote, I want to be able to count on all Uruguayans, but not so that they follow me, but so that they guide me, accompany me, end quote. This has been a summary of some of the latest news headlines from America Latina. I'm Vilma V for Noticias Sin Fronteras and La Raza Chronicles. If you have a news item or feedback that you would like to share, email us at larazachronicles at kpfa.org. Otra norma, nada se pierde, todo se transforma. This is Nina Serrano for La Raza Chronicles. Judith Knoop, women's health pioneer, passed away peacefully this Wednesday night, November 26th, at her home from congestive heart failure. Judith Knoop is known to many thousands of San Francisco General Hospital patients in the Mission District through the preparation for childbirth classes she taught, the pregnant teen clinics she ran, the births she attended, 
and the women's clinics she served. As a feminist activist, Judith formed the Women's Health Center Collective in the early 1970s, based on the emerging alternative self-health ideas of medicine and of treating pregnancy, childbirth, and menopause as normal and healthy life processes. This was at a time when teaching women to conduct self-exams was considered a criminal activity liable to fines and imprisonment. Judith helped keep the Women's Health Center alive for years through grants and community organizing. By the 1980s, she brought the project into San Francisco General Hospital with the ideas and energy to establish birth clinics with midwives in attendance, birthing centers, and making available the most advanced and progressive pro-woman health care to the low-income, working-class population of San Francisco. Judith was a natural healer. She brought her faith in the power of the human body to heal into the pharmaceutical, drug-ridden, mainstream hospital culture. For decades, she provided loving care and information to English and non-English-speaking families. In the 60s and early 70s, as a young, single, welfare activist mother of three, she battled the system that resisted supporting her education to become a self-sufficient head of household as an RN. But she gained her degree at San Francisco State University School of Nursing. Years later, determined to stay current on the best health practices, she received her master's in public health at the University of San Francisco. Judith was active in the United Methodist Civil Rights and Anti-Racism Organizations in Louisiana and also joined their tour of medical care in Cuba. More recently, she participated in 12-step and other self-help groups and was part of the progressive Jewish community. She is survived by her children, Tanya Knoop, Michelle Knoop, and Jeffrey Knoop, and her grandchildren, Trevor Knoop, Tanatwe Anseno, and Sochil Anseno. And I, Nina Serrano, her friend of 49 years, miss her loving presence in my life very much. If you want information about the memorial, email judithknoopmemorial at gmail.com. Judith Knoop Memorial at gmail.com and leave your address. Judith Knoop Presente.
welcome to La Raza Chronicles. I'm your host, Vanessa Bohm. We continue our coverage and conversations on the events in Ayotzinapa, Mexico, and the mobilizations for justice and accountability for the 43 disappeared students. We're joined on the line now by Tanalis Padilla. She is associate professor at Dartmouth College in Latin American history. She is also currently writing a book about the rural training colleges the 43 students were a part of. She's speaking with us from London. Thank you, Tanalis, for joining us. Oh, no, thank you for having me. Many in Mexico have been coming out in protest against the killing of students and the disappearance of 43 students in Ayotzinapa, Mexico. The students have often been referred to in the Spanish-language press as normalistas. Can you give us a little bit more context about who these students are and why they are referred to as normalistas? Yeah, the term normalista comes from a reference of students who study at normal. And normal simply means a school that trains students to be teachers. So anyone who goes to a normal is going there to study to be a teacher. And this particular school, Ayotzinapa, is part of several other schools that with a long and very important history that are rural normales. So not just institutions to train teachers, but to train rural teachers. And the reason that's important is because they were created in the 1920s and really given their shape in the 1930s thanks to or because of a popular revolution Mexico had back then. And these schools were set up specifically for the sons and daughters of campesinos or of peasants to be able to get an education um, and in that way be able to, to have access to a profession, especially since tilling the land was often not enough to subsist on. And at these rural normales, or at these normales rurales, students trained to become teachers that then would be sent off to rural communities. And then the schools themselves emphasized farming and agricultural work and tending to livestock. So all that you would think is, is important in farming communities. Now, today in the you know early 21st century and even before then, it might seem anachronistic to talk about, um, about agrarian society, but what is significant is that um, many in Mexico still make a living off the land or are rural communities, and these schools promised social justice for rural communities uh, more generally. So th- these rural normales have a really important legacy, actually, of political mobilization, and it's a political mobilization rooted in justice for the countryside and for its poor population. So when they were set up in the 1920s, like I said, and especially when they were really given life in the 1930s by President Lázaro Cárdenas, a great reformer, they were located in rural communities. Now, the way urbanization has worked out in Mexico, or lack of a plan of urbanization, is many people have had to migrate to cities, and city centers have grown and often absorbed what rural communities used to be. So many of these rural normales are not necessarily located in rural places anymore, although some are, but what they did preserve or what this rural focus of these schools has translated into contemporary terms is that they focus on the life or on justice for the poor in Mexico. So, and in here, Guerrero is one of the poorest states in Mexico. And in part for that reason, Ayotzinapa has provided an opportunity for the sons, because these schools are divided by gender, some are for women, some are for men, Ayotzinapa is for men. So this school provides an opportunity for the sons 
of people in Guerrero and the surrounding state from the south to be able to get an education. Sometimes it's the only way to get an education. And in a country like Mexico, which living off the land has been devastated by agreements such as NAFTA, you know, living from farming is no longer an option. So many of these students go to school not only to become teachers and be able to have a career, but also to be able to provide for their families. And this has made students incredibly conscious of their rights because these schools were created as a result of the revolution. So they represent the historical right in Mexico. And these students, when they go there, they learn about the history of these schools and they learn about the history of social justice and those who have fought for educational reforms. And they acquire a strong sense of consciousness and of their right to an education, to a free education. So many of these schools, like Ayotzinapa, um, throughout the country, have historically, have throughout the 20th century, been very politicized. And all that means is that the students there are very conscious of their rights and mobilize for two things. One, for the preservation of the schools, because since these schools are politicized, the government has often tried to shut them down or has criminalized them or has maligned them in the press as you know, centers for agitators, um, and, you know, decades past calling them communists. Now they just call them, you know, lazy students who don't want to study and they just want to agitate. And it's a way of dismissing or criminalizing students. What they're doing are, are two things. One is defending the, these types of schools because, like I said, they're one of the few opportunities for the poor, for the indigenous people to get an education. But also they've been a key elements in protest whenever government whether they be local or national, engage in unjust policies or undertake reforms to the constitutions that go against the population. So they've, they've always been a thorn in the government's uh, side in terms of the protests and how they speak up uh, because of that. So for that reason, within government circles, within the mainstream press, these schools have a bad reputation. Well, this seems to shed a little bit of light on what might be the motivation around the disappearance of the 43 students, like you had mentioned. Mm-hmm. These schools really follow in the rich revolutionary tradition that Mexico has. What were the circumstances around their disappearance? Uh-huh. So what the students uh, were doing was they had taken over a bus, which is a common practice that many students do, which is um, en masse, go on a bus and have the driver take them somewhere. They have no other means of transportation because they were trying to collect funds to be able to go to the commemoration of the October 2nd Latelolco massacre, where students were gunned down in 1968. Again, these students have a very rich sense of history and of solidarity with other struggles. So that's what they were trying to do. And on their way to Iguala, another city in Guerrero, from what we know now, it's on the mayor's order. These students were intercepted by the municipal police. Some were shot at right then, in which uh, three students were killed and three civilians, three non-normalistas. And then then 43 students were taken by the municipal police, um, and it seems like handed over to members of the organized crime. Now, the municipal mayor, Abarca, didn't want these students or thought that these students were going to protest a celebration where his wife, who was herself wanting to replace him for mayor, so it was sort of a political campaign, was going to give a speech. And he just assumed that these students were there to disrupt his and her moment of glory. So what seems to have happened is that he had municipal police take these students, and the municipal police turned them over to uh, members of organized crime. And since then, those 43 students have been missing. 
Well, while the U.S. mainstream press has not covered the growing outcry of the Mexican people as a result of what has happened to the students, alternative media has been covering some of the mobilizations across Mexico as well as in the U.S. and internationally. Can you paint a picture of what the mobilizations have looked like? I know that you're in London, but you're in communication with a lot of folks in Mexico. What is the magnitude of the Mm -hmm. protests in Mexico right now? What's really significant about the case of these 43 missing students is the extent to which it has ignited and sort of united uh, national protests in a way that few events in the recent past have. In some sense, it's astonishing to think of because since the former president, Felipe Calderón, declared his war on drugs in Mexico in 2006, there have been somewhat something like 80,000 people killed and 20,000 disappeared. So when you think about it, what's 43 more students? And yet, no other killings have ignited the type of protest that this has. And, you know, I think taking a lot of us a little bit by surprise, and to a certain extent, it represents a moment of you know, people have had enough, enough um, impunity by the government in terms of um, the extent to which the drug cartels have formed a part of the Mexican government um, or the Mexican state. And people just really saying this is enough, the extent to which there is corruption. So throughout Mexico, since the disappearance of the students, there have been massive mobilizations from Ayotzinapa, the students there, the students who've lost their peers, the families, but also in Mexico City by all sectors of of the population that have just been mounting a lot of protests and some really uh, huge demonstrations. So I think what's really significant about this event is the extent to which it represents a turning point in the level of tolerance for the drug violence that Mexico has been suffering since 2006. I think it's interesting that you had mentioned the disappearance of students has happened over time, multiple times. And it's interesting that the students were going to remember what had happened in 1968 in Tlatelolco and that this event has really touched so many people in that way and that folks are calling for the resignation of the Mexican president, Peña Nieto, which is something that in many ways really harkens back to the Mexican president at the time of El Tlatelolco, who had come out publicly to say that he was justified in the violence that was perpetrated towards the students. Peña Nieto has come out with some proposed reforms. What are these reforms and how have the people responded to these? Well, these reforms shouldn't even be interpreted as reforms as much as they're sort of um, trying to manage the crisis, a crisis that's in part um, of his making, because he, in response to the disappearances, didn't act like a concerned statesman, but rather try to lay blame on the municipality and on organized crime as if this wasn't a federal problem or a national problem. So to that extent, the only reason he's even making proposals now are because of the extent of the national outcry. But it's really important to note that these proposals don't in any way fix the fundamental kind of structural problems that have been decades in the making 
in part because of policies like from Peña Nieto's predecessors, his own party, and the U.S. as well. And it's important to consider here that the U.S. is supporting Peña Nieto and has been supporting the drug war, the, the militarization of the drug war, to the tunes of, of millions of dollars. So as U.S. taxpayers are paying for a lot of the equipment and training that is going on in, in Mexico, we should be conscious of that. But to get back to his proposed reform, first of all, some of the reforms that he's proposing are already part of aspects that he's been talking about before, like making national database of people who have been disappeared or something as sort of laughable as creating a 911 system where you can call if you're in trouble. Or another aspect is proposing the dissolving of municipal police and replacement by a federal police. The thing is, none of these would in any way solve the major, major problems um, that are of structural nature to Mexico, and much less some of the immediate causes, such as what makes him think or what would make anyone think that a national police force is less corruptible than a municipal police force. All this does is really strengthen the institution of the presidency, right? What is gained by having a 911 line where the people you're calling the police force are the same ones or are linked to people who are, are repressing. So really, these supposed reforms were rightfully not taken as, as any sort of serious proposal to resolve the problems. Well, thank you so much. We have been speaking with Danalis Padilla. She's associate professor at Dartmouth College in Latin American history. I think you've given us a lot of context and really explained sort of the rich history that the students have come from in terms of being part of the normales, the schools that they were a part of. And we hope to really keep continuing to cover these important events that are happening in Mexico. Okay. Yes, thank you so much, Vanessa. Thank you for covering it. Supongo que los días vendrán con sus revelaciones y quisiera ir con los ojos llenos de asombro no más vencer al miedo estoy emocionado de andar con encendidas antenas al porvenir Coming up next, a song by Mexican musician and singer-songwriter Edna Vasquez from her album Ser Abstracto. Poco a poco mi 
das tú mi cariño Me robaste la razón Poco a poco cariño Eras tú mi destino Me robaste el corazón Poco a poco mi niño Eras tú mi cariño Me robaste la razón poco a poco, cariño, eras tú mi destino. of Mexican singer-songwriter Edna Vasquez from her album Ser Abstracto. Today's guest is Lucha Corpi, the educator, the novelist, the poet, she wrote the first Chicana detective series, and a wonderful series it is. She writes beautiful poetry, and now she's given us her inspiring memoir. Welcome, Lucha Corpi. Gracias, Nina. Es un placer. We're so glad you're here, and we're so glad you've brought a copy of your new memoir. Could you tell us a little about it? Well, the title is Confessions of a Book Burner personal essays and stories. People ask me why Confessions of a Book Burner. And for that, you will have to read the book and come to the last essay, which is called Confessions of a Book Burner, and you will have all the answers you want. That's what I found as a reader, that I'd be reading along, I think there are six essays, and when I finally got to the last one and it told what that was about. It was like finding a little prize in the Cracker Jack box, like, <laughs> oh, this is what she means. Yeah, yeah. It was a very exciting process. I found reading it a very exciting process because times would bounce back and forth as the themes wove in and out of your life. But the things that seemed always to be there was writing literature, and also being Mexican, and also being in the United States, being a Chicana as well, and always being a woman, and for a long time, the struggle of being a single mother. Those were themes that seemed to be reoccurring, and for me, were fascinating. Well, thank you. I started this book, actually, planning it, thinking about it, when my first granddaughter was born, which was in 1997, I believe. I started thinking about it. I wrote a couple of essays, The Four Free and Invisible, which has to do with my learning to read and write in this very small town when I was four. And I realized, as I was revising those essays this time with a different perspective, 
that I have lived my life in four different places. My childhood, which I spent in Jaltipan, Veracruz. Then I spent my adolescence in San Luis Potosí, which is a central Mexico. Then at age 19, I got married and I came to Berkeley, where I lived 10 years and actually went to school at USC Berkeley. Then finally, I moved to Oakland, where I was a teacher for 31 years and where I lived and was more a city that I enjoyed living in, despite all its bad reputation and everything, is one of the most ethnically integrated cities in California. And for that reason, it has very particular problems, too. <laughs> but I was making a memory in a way of the time that I've spent in California, both in Berkeley and Oakland. I came across the border in 1964. So that means that 2014 is the 50th anniversary of my having come in September to the U.S. I had no idea whether I was going to stay here or not. I had no idea what was in store for me, you know. So one thing I found writing this book is that I don't have a lot of regrets that I somehow managed along the way to put things in perspective to scrutinize my life in a way as I was having the experiences and then put things in order, do a little, you know, psychological housekeeping as I was going through bad times or good times and, you know, making peace with with whatever has happened and learn the lessons that are there and moving on as best I can. I learned to do that actually in Berkeley and Oakland because going through a divorce and being a single mom for 24 years is a tough time and it was full of all kinds of contradictions and ambivalence and all that. But the idea with the essays was, you know, not just to write a memoir, but I wanted to leave something for my grandchildren. A life, you know, that also includes their paternal grandfather and all other people that have been very important in my family in Mexico. I'm the only one who came here and stayed, so all of them live in Mexico. So I wanted that. The theme goes from the place I was born and spent my childhood, which was so, in a way, determinant of what I did later. Do you think you could read us a little of that section? Well, yes, I can read actually from the second essay, which is called For Free and Invisible. I was lucky to spend my formative years in a small community that fostered the creation, performance, and appreciation of music, dance, poetry, and storytelling. Jaltipan de Morelos, Veracruz, was still a village and had a population of about 2,000 the year I was born a small tropical community on the Gulf of Mexico side of the Isthmus of Tehuantepec. It lay on a tropical savanna about 40 minutes by car or cranky bus from the coast. It gained its city status in 1953 after the Azufrera Panamericana, the Pan American Sulfur Company, began operations there, attracting workers from all over Mexico. The town's population exploded in the next decade. Before then, migration to the southern half of the state trickled down from the port of 
of Veracruz, where cargo and passenger ships sailing the Atlantic arrive. So it wasn't unusual to find families with North American, German, French, and Italian ancestry and surnames who had arrived from Europe via Cuba and other Caribbean islands where they had relatives and had decided to settle in the region of Sotavento, where Haltipan was located. In many of the region's towns, including Haltipan, four different dialects of the Popoluca were still spoken. In addition to Zapotec, in Nahuatl. As expected, Spanish was the dominant language, but it still had great competition from Mexicano, Nahuatl, the language of the Mexica people, the Aztecs. My birthplace owes its name to the Nahuatl words for it, Xaltipac, which literally means place on sands. During the post-conquest era, its name was substituted by its phonetic version in Spanish and became Haltipan. The old town I call home until the beginning of 1954 had four major thoroughfares. They fanned out from the main square, El Parque. Each had an official name. Two of them, Avenida Morelos and Calle Gutierrez Zamora, respectively led to the Transismic Highway. At some point, it met the Pan-American Highway, which threaded together most of the larger towns throughout Mexico's southern states. Calle Morelos was referred to and known by most native Haltipanecos as El Camino a Cozoliacaque, Minatitlán, the way to the towns of Cozoliacaque and Minatitlán. Calle Gutierrez Zamora was the way to Acayucan, another town. If by definition we consider any world community to be multicultural and multilingual, when many languages and cultures prosper and benefit from contact with one another, then Haltipan was such a place. The generations of the Popoluca, the native Mexicans in the region, were the remaining descendants of the old Olmec, the ancient civilization famous for their carvings of monumental stoneheads. When I learned the Popoluca translates into Spanish as gente que habla mucho, people who talk a lot, I found the designation appropriate. Whether inhabitants were pure-blooded descendants of the pre-Columbian Mesoamericans, were mestizos or the offspring of more recent European transplants, the native Haltipanecos were gregarious. They loved socializing, playing music, singing and dancing, writing and performing poetry and telling stories. In most areas of town, we enjoyed the use of electricity, but we lacked other modern conveniences. For example, until I was almost six years old, there was no tap water. People caught rainfall in large drums for washing and bathing. Folks who could afford it paid water carriers to bring cans of drinking water to the doorsteps from the natural springs outside town. Twice a week, Tirso El Aguador, the water carrier, brought the spring water to our home. Sometimes, Tirso would let my brother Victor and me sit on his mules while he emptied the cans into the large drinking water ollas in the kitchen. Water carriers were famous for being among the toughest and most foul-tongued men in the region. Our Tirso was no exception. But unlike other water carriers, he delighted in teaching the children in town some of his favorite colorful expressions and instructed us on the right situation for their use. His lessons began with the simplest and more acceptable words like carajo, darn, or que carajo pasa, what the heck or hell's going on, for any kind of mistake or minus mishap. Then he moved on to the brighter, redder biggies, which were the more dramatic, hurtful, and socially censored expletives involving mothers and other acts, which I, being four years old, could not even begin to grasp. 
Tirsu's stone grew deeper and his gestures became more theatrical as Victor and I master each word in the litany of biggies he taught us. Six and four years old, Victor and I were Tirsu's star pupils. Being a great deal more cautious than I, Victor did not use his kind of colorful language in front of our parents and he suggested I follow his example a warning that I naturally didn't heed. I filled up with those forbidden words as if they were mangoes or guavas, meaty, sensual, and sweet. Encouraged by the soft chuckles of relatives and other adults around me, whenever they heard me, I practiced my newly acquired vocabulary every day. While trying to run fast down the stairs to the backyard, I tripped and almost fell down the steps. Ay, ching! Casi me mato. Oh, I almost killed myself. Busy as I was rubbing my sore knee, I didn't see my mom until she was standing next to me with a basket of laundry resting on her hip. I covered my mouth with my hand and prayed to everyone in heaven that she hadn't heard me, my throbbing earlobe benched between my mom's thumb and index fingernails made me immediately aware that my plea had gone unheard up there in the celestial kingdom. Once inside the house, my mother reached for a chilillo, a long, skinny, flexible reed, which she kept at hand for those times when we needed to be reminded that when she said no, she meant exactly that. My brother Victor came running in. When he saw the chilillo in my mom's hand, he knew I was going to get it, but he pleaded with my mom, begging her that he, instead of I, be punished. My mom had a soft spot in her heart for Victor. And my brother had a soft spot in his for me. So my mom whipped the air with a chilillo, then put it down. But warn me, I'll wash your mouth out with soap if I ever hear you use bad language again. That's a promise. No question, I was a willful child. And for months I gave her innumerable opportunities to keep her promise. And she did. That year... I was a four-year-old with the cleanest, though not necessarily the purest, tongue in town. Marvelous. (laughs) Your first encounter with language. Yes. Marvelous. So the struggles and encounters with language continue. Yes. When I was eight years old, as I said, we moved to San Luis Potosí, which was a very traumatic experience for all of us in many, many ways, because San Luis was so different from the tropical town we had grown up in. I had found as a child that silence and melancholy were actually my allies, because I could spend time by myself quiet enough to hear what was going on in my head and my feelings come, you know, face to face with feelings that were not so pleasant. And I was interested in one of those occasions, I was interested in learning the language of the devil because El Diablo, the devil, would, you know, come at night and tempt people at dances and all kinds of situations. And these were the tales my grandmother used to. My grandmother was a storyteller. It was a great storyteller. So she said, well, you know, she talks to about riches and power to men and tempts them to be this and that and, of course, takes their souls. But women, too. You know, he whispers little, you know, sweet nothings in their ears and take their soul. And well, I asked my grandma, you know, what, what does he say to women? Has he ever talked to you? And my grandma said, no, 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 no. I have not been tempted by El Diablo. But at that point, I became interested in the language of El Diablo. What, where were these sweet nothings? So I used to spend a lot of time in the dark, 
sitting at night by myself while everybody was asleep, waiting for El Diablo to show up and teach me <laughs> the language, his language, because I was interested in learning. So even at that early age, of course, all prompted and, you know, encouraged by my, my grandmother's stories, I was already becoming a storyteller. I just didn't know it at the time. The essays, there are 11, 12, I think, 12 essays in the book, ranging in length and, and subject and all that. But all of them go through the four places and the four stages in my life. If you read the whole book from beginning to end, you will get a novel, actually. That's what I did. <laughs> in chapters. But if you prefer to read just one of the essays or two or one at a time, you can do that perfectly well, you will still be able to tell what is going on. And all those skills are actually what I acquire in writing the fiction. I don't judge my characters. I present them as I believe they are and let the reader make up their minds because you deal with so much stuff that has to do with other people. For example, I went through a very, very painful divorce. Now, it would be very easy for me to trash my ex-husband, <laughs> and I have been tempted every so often. But I think, in a way, making peace with that part of my life already makes me see things in a more objective way and present him and treat him as I treat my characters with respect to who they are, not trying to influence them or make them into what I want. So uh, trying to understand why they are doing what they're doing. And In and this memoir, you treat him very fairly. You credit him with opening up a lot of your intellectual yes, life. It is true. It is true. I was in San Luis Potosí, a super Catholic city, and I don't know, I, I, I was different. You know, I adapted to socially to, to everything. I got a very good education there, too. I had lots of friends, and I had lots of, you know, young men who wanted to be boyfriends, too. <laughs> but the reason I was attracted to my first husband is that he, like the devil, whispered sweet nothings in my ear. And the sweet nothings were things that I had been starving for. Knowledge, reading, more expanding my horizons. Can you read us a little more from your book? Yes. Confessions of a Book Burner. Of a Book Burner. This has to do a little bit with when I met Gloria Damasco, who is the detective, in my novels, I have four novels in her series, and it's a eulogy for a brown angel, the first one, the second one is Cactus Blood, third one is Black Widow's Wardrobe, and then the fourth one is Death at Solstice. I'm going to read a little bit about The Roads Not Taken. There is a, a, an essay in the book that speaks about destiny, pursuing destiny. And so there are times when we miss. So there are other roads that we take. And so this is to do with the roads taken. One of those roads led me to the fulfillment of a childhood dream to write a mystery novel. In 1989, during a sojourn in California, Sierra Nevada, I first briefly saw and heard Chicana P.I. Gloria Damasco, the lead detective in a series of novels I was to write, and the woman who would eventually tell the Malinche's story in Black Widow's Wardrobe, the third in the series of four Gloria Damasco detective novels. 
I had gone to the Sierra Nevada specifically to revise and organize my second poetry manuscript, Variaciones sobre una Tempestad, Variations on the Storm, which was already due at the press. The late Ted and Peewee Kalman, whom I had met through Kathy and Alcides, offered me their condo for a week in the town of Donner Lake, a short drive from Lake Tahoe. I accepted. A good thing was that my good friend and publisher at Third Woman's Press, Norma Larcon, and her husband visited me there for a couple of days, and we had a chance to talk about the project. Then they went on to explore the Lake Tahoe area on their way back to Oakland. At the end of three days of intense work, my manuscript was ready. I put back in a folder the photocopies of loose poems that I had decided not to include in the collection. One by one, I burned the extra Xerox copies of all the poems, but not of Kathy's translations. I also threw in the pyre all those poems that I didn't consider to be good enough for inclusion in the collection or to keep in the unpublished work folder. I was done. But since I had the condo for two more days, I decided to stay and get some rest. I had taken with me some CDs, among them a recording of the Puccini opera Madame Butterfly. I'm not an opera buff, but for some unknown reason I was obsessed with that opera, especially the aria Umbel D. I had also started a list of books I wanted to read about the architecture, viticulture, and the wine industry in the Napa and Sonoma Valleys, also known as the California Wine Country. Before my stay in Donner Lake, I had made repeated trips to both valleys looking into the history of the Vallejo family in Sonoma and the Peralta family in Oakland. Following my obsessions at the time, I had frequently driven to Los Angeles to study gangs and events that led to a riot during the 1970 National Chicano Moratorium. I was also researching an elixir I had come across during a visit with my son when he spent his junior year abroad in Brazil. I had already decided to write my first mystery novel, Eulogy for a Brown Angel, and sensed, more than knew, that all of my obsessions and interests had to do with the plotting of the novel. Yet I had no idea how how they would eventually fit together, nor had I conceived my main character, the detective that would need access to all that knowledge and experience. Looking to research some of these topics during my sojourn in the mountains, I paid a fruitless visit to a local bookstore in Lake Tahoe. I bought instead a P.D. James mystery novel and drove back to Donner Lake. After a walk along the lakeshore, I went back to the condo when dark, heavy clouds began to gather above the mountains. Sunset was still two hours away. I locked the sliding doors to the lake before I went up the spiral staircase to the living area. I turned on my CD player and listened to Puccini's opera, then lay down on the sofa to read P.D. James' mystery yarn. About an hour later, I slipped into a deep sleep only to be awakened later by a loud noise. I opened my eyes to total darkness. I was sure someone was in the sleeping area downstairs. My fears immediately raced down the spiral staircase to the sliding doors. Had I locked them, after all? Was someone down there, lurking, waiting? How long before the intruder made his way up the spiral staircase? I listened intently, but all I could hear and feel were my intermittent breaths and the rapid beating of my heart. I was trembling from head to toe. But I forced myself to sit up while I weighed the risks of going downstairs and confronting the intruder. My eyes adjusted to the darkness, and as quietly as possible I walked to the fireplace and got hold of the poker. I began my descent barefoot, taking one step in deep breath at a time. I stood at the foot of the stairs and surveyed the area, then walked to the sliding doors and checked them. They were locked. I looked behind each closet and room door and under each bed until I was satisfied no one was there. 
As I got to the top of the stairs, my heart did a Mexican head dance in my chest. Something or someone, a white raggedy gown on, its arms flailing wildly, swayed and gestured just outside the sliding doors to the dark balcony. It's not of this world, I thought. My heart picked up its pace. The phantasm went on with his macabre dancing. I put down the poker and looked around for a cross or a crucifix. I sucked in a nervous chuckle as I realized that I would not find such an object there. My friends, the Kalmans, were Jewish. In the absence of a ghost-busting instrument, I crossed one index finger over the other to make a cross and walked closer to the sliding doors. The specter turned out to be a large white windsock dancing in the night air. I had no idea who had hung it from a branch of the pine next to the balcony during my long nap. I dropped to the floor, scared out of my wits. Still shaking and breathing hard, I made myself a cup of coffee and sat in an easy chair, cloaked in a cotton blanket in darkness, unable to close my eyes and get some sleep. Closer to dawn, I turned on the CD player, low, hoping that Madame Butterfly would lull me to sleep. It took a long while for the soprano to reach the first heart-wrenching phrases of the area, Umbeldi, and for my eyes to finally close for what seemed only seconds, as if on a light red screen inside my lids I saw a pair of dark hands and arms, and nestled between them a little boy, a toddler who appeared to be asleep. I am Gloria, and this child is for you, a woman's voice said as she handed me the little boy. I extended my arms to receive her gift. They were still outstretched when I opened my eyes. I heard the crack of thunder in the distance, the same noise that had awakened me the previous night. It was noon and the thunderstorm was moving in. It would soon be raging right above Donner Lake. Driving down the mountain in such unsettled weather made no sense. I made lunch and ate. Then I picked up my notebook and wrote. Luisa and I found the child lying on his side in a fetal position. This is the opening line of eulogy for a brown angel, my first Gloria Damasco mystery novel. That's marvelous. Thank you. It's wonderful to be able to hear you read it. It's so different than when I read it to myself. And you really describing how you went about writing a mystery. You wrote a mystery. Yes. This has been really marvelous, really marvelous. Confessions of a Book Burner by Lucha Corpi, who's been reading to us and discussing with us how she went about writing it, why she went about writing it, and sharing with us her role as a poet and her role as a novelist and doing it all with beauty and courage. Thank you so much, Lucha Thank you, Carmen. Nina. It's been a pleasure. The same. Igualmente. This is Cronicas de la Raza, La Raza Chronicles, calendar of upcoming events. This weekend through December 6th, there will be a Cuban cabaret, Explosión Cubana, Una Noche Tropical, will be happening Friday, Saturday, and Sunday until December 6th at Dance Mission Theater. You can find out more information at Dance Mission and see the Alayo Dance Company, an evening of Cuban cabaret complete with dinner and a show. 
Join Studio Grand for a night of poetic, electric, and stunning music with Maria del Pilar from Chile, joined by Gloria Estrada and Puerto Rican singer-songwriter Maria Jose Montijo. The show will take place this Friday, December 5th at 8.30 p.m. at Studio Grand in Oakland. La Raza Chronicle listeners are in for a treat, so make sure not to miss out. You can also catch A Weekend with Pablo Picasso, written by and starring Herbert Siguenza of Culture Clash. You can see this at the San Jose stage now through December 7th. Shows will be Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, and Sunday matinee. San Jose Stage Company is in San Jose, and you can find out more at thestage.org. You can also look forward to Clinica Martimbaro's annual Salsa fundraiser. Every year, student volunteers from San Francisco State University hold a salsa night to raise funds for their strictly donation-based clinic, Clinica Martimbaro, which provides basic medical care, psychotherapy, and health education to people of the Latino community who may not otherwise receive access to these services. The salsa night will be Saturday, December 6th, and will be at the Women's Building of San Francisco. And last but not least, you can mark your calendar December 20th and 21st. KPFA will be holding its annual crafts fair and it will be celebrating its new home at the Craneway, located on the Bay Trail in Richmond, California. Over 200 professional artisans, craftspeople, and fair traders will be on hand to present their unique work. Plus, there's live music each day and food catered by Ensemble Restaurant. Those are just a few of the many happenings in the Bay. If you have an event you're putting on and would like to include it in our weekly events calendar, you can email us at ladrasachronicles at kpfa.org. And to stay up on local events and breaking news, you can like us on Facebook. This has been Cronicas de la Raza's event calendar. You've been listening to La Raza Chronicles, Crónicas de la Raza. To hear this program, find us at La Raza Chronicles on SoundCloud. Make sure to also like us on Facebook to get regular updates on news, events, and much more from the Latino community. Stay tuned next week for more news, conversations, arts, culture with Un Sabor Latino. Hasta la próxima. Buenas noches.